You're tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. With MNEA Connects still being in its infancy and all of those RFPs rolling in for MNEA members to be hosts and guests, I'm going to use the next two professional learning episodes to introduce you to MNEA President Phil Murray and MNEA Vice President Rebecca McIntosh. This week, you're getting an introduction to MNEA President Phil Murray. First question, who is Phil Murray? Tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Well, that's a tough one to start with, just just who am I and, and, and where I got started and stuff like that. I guess I should go back and, and say that I am a, I am a Missourian only because I am I am a man without a state in, in a weird sort of way. My, my father was in the military, and so I was born in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And uh, six months after that, I moved to Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, so I can say I've been to Hawaii. Um, when I was three, we came back to Missouri, and we've lived here ever since. And so even though he was in the military and he traveled, he made it so that we were always at Fort Leonard Wood because my mom was from St. Louis. And so I spent um, uh, pretty much every weekend of my life growing up in St. Louis and a lot of the summer. And so that that's kind of a home to me as well. But... I found out when I was doing a passport that where I was born in Fort Campbell, Kentucky is no longer in Kentucky, it's in Tennessee. And so, uh, although I still get my birth certificate from Kentucky, the place where I was born is no longer in that state. So that's why I'm kind of a man without a state. So I'll I'll always claim Missouri as my home because I've spent most of my life here. And, uh, but, um, you know, I, I did not start out wanting to be an educator. Uh, When I went to school the first time, and I say it that way because I, I kind of went through my college experience in, in, in shifts and phases, but I was going to be in the military. And so I think that I was going to follow the family business. I went to Missouri State University and realized that that was probably not the life for me. And so I, I went through school. I decided that I needed to stop wasting my, my money and my parents' money. And so I went and got a job and I became a radio DJ. Uh, another one of those dreams. I used to listen at night to the radio and listen to WLS out of Chicago and listen to all those great DJs. And that was something I thought I wanted to be. Um, so I wound up in Poplar Bluff, Missouri and um, started working radio stations and realized then again that that really wasn't the life for me. And uh, so I worked for a few years and decided to go back to school. And this time I wanted to be a teacher, an elementary school teacher. And so it was a pretty rough road to go. I mean, I started, um, I shifted one run radio station to another so I can work the evening shift. And um, I went to school in the day and I worked in the evenings. And so I would get up at six in the morning, drive to Cape Toronto, go to school. And then um, about three o'clock, come back to Poplar Bluff. And from six to midnight, I'd work on the radio and then I'd get up and redo that. And I did that for two and a half years. And you did teach elementary? I did. I started off as a third grade teacher. Mm. Um, actually, I, I, I should go back. I started as a fourth grade teacher. When, 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 I, was, when I came out of school, um, getting teaching positions was a little more challenging than it is now. And so I actually had to teach in a, a, a parochial school for a year. 
before I can get into the public school system. But I taught fourth grade there and actually developed great friendships with, with fellow educators. And actually, some of those students that I had actually will play a, a part of my life as we go through the process. Um, I went into, um, so I taught fourth grade there. And then when I moved to uh, the public school, I became a third grade teacher in a high poverty school district. It was an absolutely wonderful experience because those kids really needed what we were giving them. We were able to, through some work with some grants, we were able to have very small class sizes for the early elementaries. And so it was a, it was a great experience for me. Um, after about six years, they, they closed that school um, and we, we kind of consolidated schools in Poplar Bluff, moved on to fourth grade, then eventually to sixth grade and decided the sixth grade was too high for me, um, a little bit too challenging. And so I went back to fifth grade and I finished my career as a fifth grade educator. Could you describe your role at MNEA? What does a day in the life of you as the president look like um, just so that we have an introduction to not just you, but also your role? So when you talk about the structure of Missouri NEA, you really talk about multiple structures because, of course, being a national organization, there's there's that element that that deals with that part of the work. You know, the day to day operations of the association, actually, we hire people to do. And so there's that staff function. And so we have an executive director who takes care of that. They take direction from from the president, the vice president, and the board of directors. And so they have an idea of what we want to do. They report back to us to make sure that's done. My job as the president, you know, it, it's it's varied. And so some days I am the, the person who plans and does meetings. Other days I am a participant in meetings that are going on. Sometimes I am the connector to working really hard to get local presidents together and start talking about how they can improve their structures, how they can improve their communications, making ourselves available. Um, sometimes I'm the reader in chief. I'm the person in, in classrooms reading stories to kids. And so there's there's a lot of different levels um, that we work on. Part of my day almost always is talking about some issues that are going on in the state, the bad parts, the how are we helping members in these particular areas where problems are happening. Part of my day is getting together with people and planning how can we be proactive and making sure that we're making the proper changes and the proper decisions to help our kids and help our educators in the classroom. And so that's that's another part of the process that, that we have. And then, of course, you know, we always have to keep our ear to what's going on nationally. And so even today, this afternoon, I will be on a call with NEA leaders talking about some some of the issues that are going on in, in different parts of the states. and and. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about this process is that I learned that we're all the same, but yet we're all very different. So when I when I have conversations to pe with people about what we're doing at our state and hearing what's going on, I realize that although there are some things that are the same, we are wildly different than many, even even some of the states that are connected to us. I mean, there's almost no way to compare other than just the very basics. Well, I realize that and bring that into my work with our locals. You know, our, our locals are all very different. They have some threads that are that are consistent all the way through. But, you know, whether it's a large local, whether it's a small local, whether it's one that bargains, whether it's one that doesn't bargain, there's so many different things that go on. And so, you know, it's very important for Rebecca and I both to make sure that we keep an, an open mind when we're dealing with our locals and those issues. And so it's 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 so varied and no two days are the same. And actually, I spend probably um, about 15 to 20 percent of my time just dealing with issues at the national level um, with those meetings. Speaking of that, you were 
so well-traveled and you have a lot of really unique experiences and that you do get to go in all those spaces regionally in Missouri, but then also nationally. What do you think is the best resource or advice out there for practicing teachers or educators today? So we went through a very horrific time in this when we talked about the pandemic and, and all of the effects on our kids and the families and the communities that we went through. One of the things that, that and there may be a question that you have further down the road, that you know, people will, will say, what do you really want to see that's different? And, and, and it kind of feeds into this in that we can't go back to the way things were because the way things were weren't all that great and the world has changed. And so I think that probably the advice that I give people is always innovate, always think ahead, always find different ways to do things because, you know, our, our society changes quick that, um, you know, even, even the fads, even the, I mean, just everything moves so fast. And I think that it's important for us to not get stuck into what we, what we did or, or what it was like, or even what it was like when we were in school. You know, one of the, one of the best administrators I ever had when she moved on into the central office administration, after a couple of years, she said, I have no idea what you do in the classrooms now. I don't think I can do it because even though I see it happening all the time, I'm so far removed, things have changed so fast. And so I think that one of the best bit of advice I give all educators is always innovate, always think ahead and, and, and know your clientele, understand your kids, understand what your kids need, because ultimately that's why we're there. You know, it's, it's not something that we're there for us. We're, we're really there for those kids. I mean, that is what motivated me to become an educator. I could have done anything else, but I loved dealing with the kids. I loved being able to uh, be a role model for them, to be able to listen to their needs, to be able to help them. wasn't wasn't always successful. There were a lot of times where we just didn't connect, and but I always knew that in those situations, that was my problem, not theirs, and that I needed to fix that. Always be thinking about your kids. Think about what your kids need. What's what is what is it? It's in their best interest. And sometimes you're going to be fighting against other sources and resources. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of things going on out there. But as long as we keep kids in the focus, if we keep kids in the middle, if we keep kids as the reason why we're doing what we're doing, we will ultimately make the best decisions. Love it. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing K through 12 education today? Or what do you think the biggest challenge facing K through 12 educators is today? Well, you know, again, the, the, the first, the desire by some of those who are in charge to go back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I consistently hear people who are upset is when administrators are consistently going back to the old days, the old ways, mm-hmm. instead of being innovative and thinking about things uh, in ways that are in the best interest of our kids. Um, and of course, the part that we're dealing with right now is that education has become so politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've gotten to the point where it's no longer about the kids. It's about which side is winning what argument. And that yeah. can't be the case again, you know, and, and when we talk about our kids, we should be talking about all of our kids. Yes. And yes. that is by far the most important thing as well, too, is we need to make sure that our kids come from different places. They have different experiences and we have to respect that. We have to honor that. And, um, you know, I think we're going to have to figure out a way to get past the politicians so that we can consistently do what we need to do, which is in the best interest for our kids. Love that. 
Well, what do you think is the greatest hope for K through 12 education? That there are a lot of educators that are sticking with us. We always talk about educator shortage and it is a very real thing, but you know, most industries are dealing with shortages right now. Right. Um, there are a lot of people who are exhausted. There are a lot of people who question whether they need to do this or not, but you know what? They come back the next year. They continue to go through the process. Again, these are college educated people who can do so many other things and they're choosing to be with our kids and they're choosing to stick with their communities and they're choosing to do the right thing by our students. So that is very hopeful. Mm -hmm. um, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to get people interested again in, in going through the process of going through and getting their education so they can go be educators. But, you know, we will figure that out. Yeah. I think we will figure that out, but I think that it may take some time. It may take some ingenuity, but, you know, as long as we make sure that we give the kids their best, which is us, I think that we're going to be, we're going to be okay. Absolutely. You said something really interesting about your hope is the focus on educators sticking with us. Why aren't we just focusing on the teachers that are here and like taking care of them? Because what no one wants to come to a, a profession where you are highly educated and then you are treated in the way that you are. And on, and I would even say in a lot of ways demeaned because you are not sitting at a table helping make decisions for kids that you work with on a daily basis. So, I, so I'm just in these spaces when I'm in all these meetings, especially at our, at DESE about the teacher shortage. And they're like, what are, what are your members saying? I'm like, what, they're, <laughs> what do you think they're saying? They're just, they're frustrated about on almost every level. And why aren't we taking care of them? You're talking about some a band aid almost with this thirty eight thousand. That doesn't that does nothing on the day to day. Well, I agree. That's that's unfortunately when we, you see people try to put a business model onto education. The assumption is if we pay them more, they will be happier and they will stay, and that's not really the case. I mean, everybody wants to, to be able to make. A living. They also want to be able to take care of their family. They don't want to have to do a second job to be able to do this job. And so, you know, those issues obviously have to be taken care of. But you also have to make sure that you give us the resources that we can do what we need to do for our kids. Uh, we need to make sure that we have safe environments. We need to make sure that we have the social emotional support for both our educators and our students. And I think that's the most important part. So we tend to think of them in one boat or the other. And we can't. We have to think about them in both ways. And so we also have to understand that even when kids misbehave, even when kids are, are acting out or doing, there's a reason why they're doing that. And so it is our job to help try, because again, we're trying to educate the whole child. So we need to do everything we can to make sure that we support that child so that they don't continue to do the behaviors that they do. Because, um, you know, you can't punish your way out of it. We already know that doesn't work. And, and, and it shouldn't work. And it, it, it's not nobody, not, none of us would respond that way. So if I get angry and I get upset about something and I act badly, it's because I'm angry and upset and I have no other way of taking care of that. And so we have to do that. But, but then also we have to, to make sure that we support their educators because sometimes we tend to bury our head in the sand. So it's like, okay, well, this kid's misbehaving, but as long as we keep them under control, we can keep them where he is. That really makes the life very difficult for the educator. And so instead of giving the support and, you know, 
you know, I don't know what the answer is over, overall for the for the, our educators. I mean, I'm I'm not that smart, and I don't have their access to the resources to be able to do that. But I think the most important part is we need to quit trying to solve the problem without talking to the people who are dealing with it. Yeah. And that's the most important part. So you know, I know that the I the, the state was in it, their heart maybe been in the right place and putting the blue ribbon commission together. But, you know, there are way more business people, nowhere near enough educators on that committee to have those conversations. And I think that when they were going through the state and asking people in their little sessions, they were finding out that educators were showing up and saying, you're not listening. It's not about the money or it's not just about the money. It's about supporting us. It's about making sure that our kids get what they need and that we get what we need. And, you know, again, the answers are different in different places. And it's very important to understand that as well. One size will not fit all. We're, we're a little bit the same, but we're wildly different. And so we need to make sure that we, we understand that when we try to come through with those solutions. Why don't you think about your favorite memory in the K through 12 classroom, whether that be as a student or a teacher? What about that memory is so lasting for you? And why do you think that is? So... I, hinted, I kind of hinted toward this in, in my first um, answer. You know, when I when I first started, I taught at this parochial school, Sacred Heart, and I had a, an amazing group of students that I got very close to. One of those individuals, and I won't go with names or anything, but but she went on and became a, an educator as well. It was very very gratifying when she came back and was teaching in the same building that I was. It was it was awesome, um, and and. Her, my last year of teaching, her daughter was in my class. And so it was a great opportunity. And unfortunately, this, this educator, this young lady that I had in class, she passed away. And so we were able to, to connect that daughter and I on just, you know, about, you know, her mom and, and those issues and how, you know, this, this, both of them were amazing students. And so that was just an interesting way to begin to, to have one person in my class and then have her daughter in class. I had multiple students uh, that parent, that there were parents of kids. I did this for 30 years. And so I, you know, actually I think in one case I had a grandchild, but I don't want to talk about that very much. But, but that, that particular one was a great, I mean, I had lots of wonderful experiences in classes and, and some that were not so wonderful, but I think that the connections that we were able to make, that I was able to make and, and, and sometimes visit with those students and those people as adults now, and, and talk about some of their experiences. That was that was wonderful. But that was probably the greatest to be able to, to, to start with my career with this wonderful student and this wonderful group of students, and then with her daughter in my class that very last year, and her also being a wonderful student and just an amazing young lady. What a full circle moment! You only have so many of them, but when you get one, you know you're like, oh, I'm forever gonna think about this and remember it. That's amazing. What is something you are grateful for right now? Oh, my family. I mean, I, that's the, when, when, you know, some of these days are wonderful. And actually I include the people that I work with here in our office and Jeff City's family. And so that, that, that's part of the expense because, you know, this is a great place to be, but there are days where it is extraordinarily stressful outside things that just completely drive you nuts and to go home. And, you know, I, I don't think you can see it. You can see my little granddaughter in the background. Um, and, and my grandkids mean the world to me and to be able just to spend time with them and do things with them. And of course, my wife puts up with an awful lot uh, with me. She actually is, is 
she was a leader herself in the association. Her mother was one of the people who helped start the organization. Her cousin is one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Well, he was part of the, 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 the group that wrote the, 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 the beginning part of the association. And so the family is, she understands, she's in a different role now that she's retired, but she is invaluable to me to be able to go and talk to some issues about just that, those stresses that I have. And, um, you know, but just, just the family is, is probably the thing that makes it possible for me to go through and both my work family and my, my home family. A huge thank you to MNEA president Phil Murray for his awesome introduction, awesome conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Lots of great things that we could definitely dive into in later episodes. Next week is the state board report, a Macy report, and finally, a legislative update before we get to our introduction with MNEA vice president Rebecca McIntosh. Mm-hmm.